church and say, hey, come to our church. It's not organized at all. the preacher this morning either. He fell face first into the pulpit and broke himself. There are a lot of different religions in the world today. And these religions have different ideas about God, Jesus, salvation, and the Bible. But if you were to take all of these ideas about salvation and you were to, to boil them down to their simplest explanations, what you'd find is there are basically only two different views on salvation. Salvation is either based on faith or salvation is either based on works. Now, the difference is pretty significant. But a works-based salvation says that my being saved or my being free from the wrath of this God or my being pleasing to my God or however you want to word it, it is dependent on how many good things that I do, how many bad things that I stop doing, and how faithfully I discharge the religious duties that, that my God has said I'm supposed to do. That is a salvation based on works. Right? It is really I, I do all that I can so that I can appease my God, appease His wrath, and earn His favor. Now, a salvation by faith is very different because it's really not dependent on me at all. It is dependent upon the object in which I place my faith. Right, so, salvation by work says I have to do in order to be saved from the wrath to come. Salvation by faith said the object of my faith has already done. And as long as I believe them, then I am freed from the wrath to come. It is, the salvation by faith is always dependent on the object in which you place your faith. Now, these two, these two types of salvation, these views of salvation have always existed. As far back as you can go, you'll find that's the way it was. And they always will. No matter how many new religions crop up, how many old religions fail, fall away, no matter how anyone explains it or what they say, in the end, all religions are going to be broke down into either salvation by faith or salvation by works. Now, sadly, many people today, professing believers especially, do not really know enough about what the Bible says about Jesus, the gospel, and salvation to say which of these ideas is correct. Are we saved by being holy? Are we saved by coming to church? Are we saved because we stop doing certain things? Do we please God? Is, is God's reason for being pleased with us that we're here at church today? Or are we here at church today because God is pleased with us for some other reason? Do we serve God to appease His wrath? Or do we serve God because someone else has already appeased His wrath in our place? Do I read my Bible so that I don't go to hell? Or do I read my Bible because I've already been saved from hell? See, those are big differences. Those are huge and significant ideas. These, these are not secondary issues. But there are some things we can agree to disagree about. This is not one of them. 
who Jesus is and why He came, that's not something we can disagree about. The nature of salvation, it's not something we can disagree about. All, all Christians, all churches, all evangelical churches that have all kinds of differences, whether Southern Baptist, Nazarene, Pentecostal, Methodist, they have lots of things they disagree on. If they're truly a church of Jesus Christ, if they're truly born-again believers, they have the nature of salvation in common. They understand how we're saved and why it is significant. And so these are important issues. Above all else, we have to get Jesus and salvation right. You know, we can get the end times wrong. Is Jesus going to come back? In a, is there really going to be a rapture in a literal thousand year reign? Or is it Jesus just going to come back and the world ends? Yeah, you know, we can all have our opinions. We can all have our ideas. And if we're wrong about those, guess what? We still go to heaven and we still take part in whichever way is right. Baptism. Should we, should we baptize believers only or should we sprinkle infants also? Well, I know what I believe. In a Baptist church, we believe in baptism by immersion. But guess what? My Lutheran brethren who believe in infant sprinkling, they've truly believed in Jesus Christ as I have. They're going to heaven whether they were dunked or sprinkled. It's not an eternally significant difference. But Jesus, salvation. If I believe a works-based salvation versus a faith-based salvation, those are vastly different. And those make an eternally significant difference difference. So what we want to do today is look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus teaches us about the nature of salvation. Open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, starting in verse 1, page 811 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs which you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you have been born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom, cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, <clears throat> we speak and we know what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things, do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man, or must the Son of Man be lifted up? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believe, for, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but the world through Him might be saved. 
He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen. They have been done in God. The title of the message this morning is The Nature of Salvation. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. God, you are great and awesome and worthy. We, we want so much to be pleasing in your sight. We want so much to understand salvation and understand the importance of Jesus in this because so much does hang in the balance. So God, today I ask you to help us with this. Father, any number of wrong ideas we may be embracing right now. Lord, there's any number of things that may be pushing in on us and pressing us away from the truth. And so we ask you, God, to help us to, to lay aside any preconceived ideas that we might have and give us ears to hear that we could take your word and we could embrace the words of Jesus for what they are as the truth and the, the, the way of salvation. That, Father, that if we have embraced a wrong view of salvation, we have never truly trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that today your Holy Spirit would begin to work in our hearts, to work in our lives, to reveal to us our desperate need of Him, and that, God, we would repent of our sins, we would believe in Jesus, and we would be born again. Father, be glorified this morning in all that happens. Give me your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I would not be a hindrance in any way to what you want done. We love you, and we want your will to be done in all of our lives. And we ask this in the precious name of our Savior. Amen. Right, you may be seated. Now, Jesus was a master teacher with a particular message about salvation. So he always took advantage of any opportunity he had to teach people about the salvation that he came to bring. And that's what we see in this passage. Now, in a way, we're getting to listen in to, on, on Jesus teaching Nicodemus about the, the nature of salvation. Now, Nicodemus is kind of an interesting guy. Right? Because Nicodemus wasn't the normal person to come to Jesus. But the, normally the people that came to Jesus, they were sinners. Right? They were Pharisees, tax collectors, or not Pharisees, tax collectors, prostitutes, and things along those lines. They were what society considered to be down and outers. They were the people that no one wanted to have anything to do with, no one liked or, or accepted or even wanted to be a part of their church. Nicodemus was sort of the opposite of that. Nicodemus was a respected man in his community. Nicodemus was a, a teacher of the law. Nicodemus was successful. He was a, a ruler of the Jews. Right? So Nicodemus had, had, had gone and made it high in his life. He had made it far in the profession with which he felt God had led him to be a part of. By worldly standards, Nicodemus's life was exactly the way most people would have wanted. Right? If people would have said, would you rather have your life or Nicodemus's life? Most people would have said, I'd rather have Nicodemus' life. He was rich. He was successful. He was respected. He had everything there was to have at that time. But Nicodemus knew something the rest of them didn't. Nicodemus knew something was missing in his life. He knew that despite all that he did, something wasn't right. That there was still something that wasn't fitting together in the way that he thought it should have been. And so he didn't know what was missing, but Jesus came on the scene. And Jesus was an interesting sort of teacher. He taught the ways of God differently than he had ever heard. He taught with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and he had maybe the truth with him. But Nicodemus says he understands that Jesus is obviously of God because he couldn't have done the things that he had done if God hadn't have been with him. And so he goes to Jesus and he's kind of wanting to know what's, what's missing. Can I fill in the gap? And I think a lot of people can relate to Nicodemus. Right? Their, their lives are fine. 
If you were to ask me, how's your life? My life is great. I mean, financially, I'm fine. I'm successful in my business. I've got a family that loves me. You know, nobody looks down upon me. I don't have a bad reputation. But it just feels like something is missing. It just feels like there should be more to life than I'm currently experiencing. And if that's you, man, you're going you're gonna to be glad you were here today because you are where Nicodemus was. And you get to listen to how Jesus answers that question. And Jesus uses this opportunity to explain to Nicodemus what he's missing is salvation. He explains to Nicodemus that that, that thing that's missing in his life is a genuine connection to God that comes through salvation. And and in this long talk that he gives, he explains to Nicodemus the, the need for salvation. He explains to Nicodemus the way of salvation. And he explains to Nicodemus the choice of salvation. And after he's explained these things to Nicodemus, he leaves him in a place where Nicodemus then must choose. What do I do? And it's from what Jesus leaves Nicodemus on and what we see here that the main idea comes from. And the main idea for the message, the most important truth to understand is this. Jesus' teaching on salvation require a response. Jesus' teaching on salvation require a response. See, Jesus, any time that he taught, he never just said, here's information, go and be, go and be happy. Every time he taught, it led people to a place where they had to make a decision. Would they believe him or would they not believe him? Would they accept him or would they reject him? So anytime Jesus teaches, particularly about salvation, that teaching requires a response from those who heard it. And what I want to do today is show you three reasons the teaching of Jesus requires a response. Number one, you must be born again. It's the first thing you've got to realize. You must be born again. Now, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he comes to get answers. And he tells Jesus, I know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Right? And he's, he's kind of, I think, building up. Right? He's, he's building up to whatever question he has and however he wants to express it. But Jesus doesn't wait and he gets right to the heart of the issue. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was a very significant phrase for Jews of Jesus' day. The kingdom of God was the place where God ruled. And by and large, Jews understood that just by being Jews, they were a part of the kingdom of God. That, that just being a Jew was enough. Right? And really, that's all that mattered. If you were born a Jew, you were circumcised on the eighth day, and you nominally kept the law, you're part of the kingdom of God. And here Jesus says, no, that's not the case. No, Nicodemus, even you must be born again, because no one enters the kingdom of God unless they are first born again. Now, for us, we don't usually think about in terms of the kingdom of God. Instead, we more typically think of terms of being saved or going to heaven. So in the context of, of our understanding, and the way that we would normally see, speak, Jesus might say to us, no one goes to heaven unless they've first been born again. Or he might say, no one is saved unless they've first been born again. So that, that brings the question, why? Why am I not saved? Why will I not go to heaven unless I've been born again? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. First, salvation isn't a matter of religion. Salvation is not a matter of religion. 
We see that here because Nicodemus was a religious guy. Nicodemus was as religious as you could possibly be. He was, it says in verse 1, a Pharisee. Now let me kind of explain what that means so that we can feel the full weight of how religious Nicodemus was. The Pharisees were a very exclusive club. At any given time, over the entire Jewish world, there were no more than 6,000 Pharisees. And to be a Pharisee, first you had to kind of be chosen and allowed to do it. Then you had to take a pledge before at least two other witnesses or three witnesses that you would devote yourself to every aspect of the law of God and the scribal law and the oral traditions. So what that meant is they took an oath in God's name that they would live for God in every way and in every day down to the, the smallest detail of their lives. In fact, the word Pharisee, it meant separated one. And what they meant by that was we have separated ourselves from all common life. We have separated ourselves from anything not of God. We are wholly, completely, totally devoted to God. Now, they fasted twice a week, every week, without fail. They tithed the, down to the tiniest amount of their money. If, uh, to, to, in order to, to keep from defiling themselves, right, they would put screens or pieces of cloth over drinks. And they would drink because they didn't want a gnat to accidentally fly into their cup and then swallow it and be defiled by taking in an unclean insect. That's how strict they were. Now, in the Jewish world, they were the cream of the crop. Good Jews looked up to the Pharisees. That, that's, when they pointed to a Pharisee, they said, that's how it's supposed to be. That's what we're all supposed to be like. And this is what Nicodemus was. He's respected. He is devoted. He is devout. And yet, Jesus still tells him, Nick, you must be born again. One of the things that I think is important for us to see here is that Nicodemus isn't, relig isn't religious in the wrong religion. He's not a devout follower of Baal. Nicodemus isn't a, a devout follower of Zeus. Nicodemus doesn't try to divide his loyalty between Yahweh and one of the gods of the Greeks. Nicodemus is totally devoted to to Judaism, the right religion with the one true God, and still he is told, you must be born again. You know, I've talked to people about being saved, and I've asked them if they were saved, and, and I've had answers like, well, I go to church, or I've been baptized, well, I'm a member of, you know, this particular church or that one. I'm a very spiritual person. And really what they're all saying is, I'm religious kind of in my own way. The problem is, being religious is not the same thing as being saved. A person could devote themselves to the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. Come to every service we have. Volunteer for anything that gets done. Be baptized. Set an example. Be the biggest giver, the best evangelist, and do the most work. But if they've not been born again, it's all been for naught. Because salvation is not a matter of being religious. Being religious simply is not enough. Salvation isn't a matter of religion. 
salvation is also not a matter of morals. Salvation isn't a matter of morals. As a Pharisee, Nick was likely a very moral person. This would have been an outflow of his religion. His religion called on him to respect his, or to treat his neighbors right. His religion called on him to be faithful to his wife, to be a, a good dad, to be a good neighbor, to be generous, to help the poor. Likely, Nicodemus did all of these things. Nicodemus was a, a good moral person. He was a good father if he had kids. He was a good husband if he was married. He was a good neighbor. Nicodemus was the guy that if you went out of town, you gave him the key to your house to collect your mail and feed your cats because you knew nothing would go missing. You could trust him to be honorable in what he did. He helped the poor. He did all of these things. But despite the great morals that Nicodemus had, Jesus still told him, you must be born again. Chances are we all know good moral people. These people are our neighbors. They are good neighbors. They pay their taxes. They work hard on their jobs. They're good parents. They're faithful to their spouses. They, they'll help you out in a bind. They're the people who give you the, the shirt off their backs. They'll come out in the middle of a snowstorm to help you start your car. I mean, these are the people that you trust. They're good moral people. The fact is, Good morals aren't enough. See, a, a good moral person really never sees their need for Jesus many times. They, they can't see the fact that, that they need a Savior. Right? Because they've never, many good moral people I've known, they never even like went out and sowed their wild oats. You know, they've, they've never done any of the things we might say are really bad. But despite their good morals, they're still not saved. Right? Because salvation isn't about good morals. Morals are important. We need more good moral people in the world we live in today. But if all we do is help people to become more moral and don't help them to become saved, we really have not helped them much at all. Because salvation is not about morals. Being moral is not enough. You must be born again. So salvation is not about religion. It's not a matter of religion. Salvation isn't a matter of morals. So what is salvation about? Well, here it is. Salvation is a matter of supernatural transformation. Salvation is a matter of supernatural transformation. Jesus explains this in verses 6 through 8. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Right, salvation is about a supernatural transformation that comes through the power of God's Holy Spirit. And we always have to remember the role the Holy Spirit plays in our salvation. The Holy Spirit is a part of our salvation at all times. Right? Because prior to salvation, before we, we come to Jesus and are saved, we have no real desire for Jesus. We're not really concerned. We, we live how we want. We do what we want. We may be good moral. We may be great sinners. We may be religious in one way or another. 
But we have no real desire for the salvation that Jesus provides. So the Holy Spirit first begins to work in our life to help us to see why we need salvation. The Holy Spirit, what John will tell us later, He convicts us of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. And so what He does is the Holy Spirit begins to deal with us and say, Yes, you're religious. Yes, you're a good moral person. But you've still sinned against a holy God. And that sin has left you devoid of any righteousness of your own. And so now you will face the just judgment of God. And once the Holy Spirit has revealed to us our need for salvation, right? He, he convicts us of these things. And he said, but you have no righteousness and you're facing judgment. But there's a way out. And then he points us to Jesus and what he did on the cross. And at that point, we have a choice to make. We can choose to turn to Jesus or we can reject that and continue the way that we were. This is what the Holy Spirit does in us prior to salvation. Well, when we choose to turn to Jesus and be saved, the Holy Spirit then begins to do another work in our lives. He begins to instantly transform us. Or as Jesus says here, we are born again. Paul will take this imagery later and he will call it being regenerated. And the idea is that we are made into new creatures. We are made into a new creation. We are no longer the same. Ezekiel prophesied about this by saying that God would take away our heart of stone and give us a new heart with new desires and, and a new want to do the things that God would have us to do. Now this, this is what salvation is about. Salvation is not about turning over a new leaf. It's not about me saying things aren't working. I'm going to try something new. Salvation is not about me saying, I'm going to change my life. Salvation is about me believing in Jesus and Jesus changing my life. The Holy Spirit transforming me in a supernatural way, making me want to do things I never would have wanted to do before, making me willing to do things I never would have been willing to do before, making me desire to live in a way that I never would have lived before. And there's nothing we can do. You and I, no matter how good we are, how religious we are, how hard that we try, we cannot bring supernatural transformation into our lives. All our attempts to change our lives ultimately fail. We can re-educate ourselves. We can change our dress. We can change the way that we talk. We can determine to just do a better job. But in the end, we have not changed who we are in the core of our being. We have not changed our heart. We have not changed our nature. And that will always rise to the top again. Salvation is about Jesus through the Holy Spirit transforming us in a supernatural way that changes us forever. And it all starts as we follow the Holy Spirit's conviction to Jesus. That's why Jesus is teaching on salvation always require a response. So first, you must be born again. Secondly, you must believe Jesus. You must believe Jesus. What we believe about Jesus absolutely crucial to our salvation. And this is important. Now, we can believe in angels. We can believe in miracles. We can believe in prayer. We can even believe in God. But if we believe the wrong things about Jesus, we are still lost. The Apostle John will take the teachings of Jesus. He will later write that those who have the Son have life. Those who do not have the Son do not have life. Everything, everything about salvation rises and falls 
on our connection to Jesus. It is everything is about Jesus. So we have to be sure we believe Jesus and we believe the right things about Jesus. Let me give you two reasons why we have to believe the right things about Jesus and and also show you what we must believe about Jesus. One, Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's love. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's love. Jesus says in, in verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And one thing I always want to point out is that salvation always begins with God. The salvation of man began in the mind of God. And it's important to understand that. Everything about our salvation was God's idea. It was God's idea for Jesus to come. It was God's idea for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. It was God's idea to forgive us because of what Jesus had done. It was God's idea to call us to himself so that we can experience the salvation that Jesus came to provide. But apart from Jesus, we're all spiritually dead and we have no desire and we do not seek out God. And so God must first seek us out. And I like that. And I don't have time to go into it a lot, but I just want you to think about that. Any time you feel convicted and feel the need for Jesus in your life, that's not God saying you're a terrible person. Any time God deals with you about this, that's not God saying, I want to send you to hell. That's the opposite. That's God saying, I love you. That's God saying, I have plans for your life. That's God saying, I have something for you that's better than you're currently experiencing. Anytime God deals with us, it is always God dealing with us because He loves us. So anytime you feel convicted by the Spirit, anytime you feel convicted by the Word, anytime you feel things aren't as they should be in your life, understand that is God at work in your life simply because He loves you. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. Why did God come up with a plan of salvation? Why did God send Jesus? Because God so loved the world. That's a powerful thought. He he so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now, I mean, I want you to think about this. Jesus came to die. I mean, that's it. He came knowing he would die. His father sent him to die on the cross for our sins because he loved us. Now, we we often get away from how big that is. But let's think for a second right right now. Make a mental list of every person in the world you would give your life to save. Not you would try to save. But you would die in their place so that they might live. Make a list. Is it a long list? Probably not. Mine are pretty much right there. That's my list. Now, let's make a different list. Think of your children. Make a list of people you would sacrifice one of your children to save. Again, not you would encourage them to try hard. But you would send your child to die in their place that they might live. Make a list. Is it a big list? I don't have a list. There ain't nobody on my list at all. I love you folks, but I would not trade one of my children for you. Not now, not ever. I just can't imagine. You know, that's exactly what God did. God traded Jesus' life for our life. He, He sent Jesus to die so that we could live. 
He sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins, which we'll talk about in a second, so that we wouldn't have to. And the only reason he did it was because he loved us. God was under no external obligation to save not a one of us. If God had let us live and die sinful and separated from Him, He would have been just in doing so. But He didn't do it because He loved us. See, the cross and what we see there with Jesus, that is the the ultimate expression of God's love for us. Does this mean life won't occasionally be difficult? No. Does it mean that, that things will always go the way that we want them to? No. But it does mean... That once and for all, God has determined and He has displayed His great love for each and every one of us. Jesus matters most because Jesus uniquely is the greatest expression of God's love that there ever has been or there ever will be. Jesus not only is the ultimate expression of God's love, Jesus alone brings salvation. Jesus alone brings salvation. God's love wasn't made up of words. It was made up of deeds. It says in verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God determined to demonstrate His love for us by sending Jesus to save us from perishing. Right? Verse 16, that we should not perish, but have everlasting life. Not to condemn us, but to save us from condemnation. It's important we understand these words. Perish. It's what we are apart from Jesus. And it means just what you think it means. It means dying. In fact, the Greek word, uh, it means to be utterly lost or destroyed. It means someone perishes, they are beyond recovery, they cannot be found or helped by any naturally mean, natural means. Spiritually speaking, perish means that one is spiritually dead, moving towards judgment, condemned to be eternally separated from God with no hope that they can fix it on their own. It's perishing. That's us, apart from Jesus. Why are we perishing? Why are we condemned? Because we have all sinned. The wages of sin is death. If we had time, we would go to Exodus 20 to look at God's standard of, of sin, to see the Ten Commandments, and to see that if we have taken God's name in vain, we have sinned, and therefore we have earned death. If we have lusted in our hearts, we have committed adultery, and thus we have sinned, and we have earned death. If we have been disrespectful to our parents and honored them, we have sinned against God, and thus we have earned death. Ten Commandments would simply show us that we have failed over and over and over again. And we do indeed deserve the death that comes from sin. But wait, you say. You just got through giving us this great big speech that was all happy about Jesus loving us and God loving us. And what about this? This doesn't sound a whole lot like love. This sounds a whole lot like God's angry and he's going to punish me. Surely if God loves me as much as you said he did, he'll overlook his minor infractions and not punish us for our sins. After all... I don't always punish my children when they do wrong. Sometimes I just let it go. Well, that may be true about the way we do our children. That is not the way God acts in the world. See, because God is not only love, but God is also holy. God is also just. God is also righteous. Since God is holy, no sin can enter into His presence ever. It's pretty stiff. It means we have to be sinless to go to heaven. Because God is just, 
He must punish every sin. Right? You say, well, wait a minute. God's good and, and loving. He can't always have to punish. Surely He can overlook some sins. Well, let me ask you. Let's say somebody goes to court for committing a big crime. And the judge, as he hears the, hears the, the case and recognizes the person is certainly and surely guilty, says, oh, he's a pretty good old boy. I'm going to let him go. Now, let me ask you, would you consider that to be a just judge? Would you consider that to be a, a good judge? No. We'd be on Facebook. I can't believe what the justice system's like. Right? We'd be writing blog posts about it. We'd be texting people. I can't believe they let off that. And here's how I know we do that. I see what we post when some star in Hollywood gets in trouble and then gets off with a slap on the wrist. Well, if that was me, I wouldn't get off like that. Right? That's what we They should just throw the book at them. We don't think the judges that let them go were just or good. God's just and good. He can't let us go. He must punish every sin. And since God is, is righteous, can't make any exceptions. He cannot judge my sin and excuse yours. He must treat everyone the same all across the board. And since we have all sinned, we have all violated His law, we have all earned His wrath, we have all earned His judgment, and we have all earned spiritual death. Now, if that was the end of the story, this would be a depressing message. But it's not the end of the story. Since God loves us, He wanted better for our lives than judgment. God wanted us to know Him and experience Him in this life and in the world to come. Since our sins separated us from Him, He could not just bring us to Him without a penalty being paid. That is what Jesus came to do. That's what He says in verse 17. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. See, what happened to Him on the cross was not Jesus being a martyr for the cause. It was not Jesus hacking off the wrong people. It was Jesus enduring the wrath of God against the sin of mankind. It was Jesus dying for you and for me. It was Jesus enduring hell that we deserve so that we could be saved from the wrath to come. And He endured that wrath until He cried out, It is finished. Three days later, He rose from the dead, victorious over death, offering salvation and eternal life for all who would believe. Only Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. And so only Jesus has salvation. Right? And, and He did it so that the world with Him would not be condemned. Right in verse 18 it says that with those who have believed are, are not condemned. Right? I mean, this means when we believe in Jesus... The wrath that we have earned is taken away. The condemnation that is justly ours is gone. And we will never again be judged as sinners. The believer in Jesus Christ has had their sins taken away. The believer in Jesus Christ has had their slate wiped clean. And it's as though they had never sinned to begin with. They are righteous and pure and perfect in God's sight. And the genuine believer in Jesus Christ is free from all condemnation forever. Those who believe in Jesus are free, forever free from condemnation, and they will not perish. And since Jesus alone has done what is necessary to pay the penalty for our sins, we must choose to believe in Jesus. And this is why 
Jesus' teaching on salvation require a response. So first, you must be born again. Secondly, you must believe Jesus. Finally, you must receive Jesus. One of the more common criticisms of Christianity is that we are condemning people. Right? We go out and say people have sinned and therefore they are condemned and, and we are condemning them. And, and it can sound like a valid argument, right? Because I just got through saying we've all sinned. We've all broken God's standard. We've all are deserving the wrath of God in hell. That sounds like I just condemned everybody. But that's not accurate. Right? The person who says all have sinned and deserve the wrath of God is not condemning anyone. The person who says that is simply explaining the truth. Right? That's what Jesus says in verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. There you go. Right? Imagine it like this. If you have a great big mustard stain on your shirt, you went out to eat and you spilled a great big blob of mustard on your shirt. Somebody comes up to you and says, hey, there's a great big mustard stain on your shirt. Does it make sense for you to then go, what are you doing talking about my shirt? Why you got to put me down? You put that mustard stain on my shirt. You're just trying to make me feel bad. Now, did the person who pointed out the mustard stain do anything wrong? No. What did they do? They pointed out something that was already true. You had a stain on your shirt. In the same way, when we say all of sin and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and apart from Jesus, that's what we all deserve. We're not condemning anyone. Simply pointing out a fact that is already true. It is true, whether we accept it or not, that those who do not believe in Jesus are condemned. They are. Not they might be. Not they could be. Not even they should be. They are. That is a fact, a truth, a standard. And so Christians are not condemning anyone when we say that we are simply pointing out a fact of salvation but we are pointing out that fact of salvation to help people to see that they need to have that condemnation removed by jesus we're not trying to make them feel bad we're not trying to tell them they're worthless we tell them that that the condemnation is because of sin so that they will then see their need from jesus they will believe in jesus and they will be saved We're not telling them to stop doing that. We're not telling them to start coming to church. We're not telling them to be religious or be more moral. Tell them you need Jesus and he'll save you and he'll take that condemnation away from you. And the thing is, man, salvation in Jesus, it is it is all about what he has done. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We all are going to stand before the Lord someday. And when we do, He will not give a flip whether you went to the Free Will Baptist Church, the Nazarene Church, or the Pentecostal Church. He will not care how many times you've been baptized or how much money you gave or how much you helped your neighbors. The main thing He will care about is what did you do with Jesus? Did you believe in Jesus or did you reject Jesus? That is ultimately what will matter. Were you born again? And we have to understand that placing our faith in Jesus, it is an intentional, willful decision that you and I have to make on our own. No one can make it for you. When we have babies born, we have baby dedications here. 
That does not save that child. That does not make that child a part of the kingdom of God. They're not born again because of what we do. At some point in that child's life, they must grow up and they must choose to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, we've talked about all that Jesus does. How it's an expression of God's love and that God works in us because He loves us and He frees us from condemnation, takes our sin and guilt away. And the question is, why would someone not? Why would someone not want that? Why would someone understand the message of salvation? Understand the truth of the wrath to come. And yet say, I'm going to keep on going like I am. It's a wonder. That's a question. Wonder. Well, Jesus actually gives us the answer in verse 19. This is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's it. People reject Jesus because they love the darkness more than they light. There's two things that go along with that. One, that they love sin more than the Savior. They love sin more than the Savior. Jesus died for sin. That's a fact. And since that's a fact, it makes sense that those who believe in Jesus will try to live a holy life. Right? That, that those who are saved by this one who has died on the cross for us, that we will, we will do our dead level best not to live a life of, of things and taking pleasure in things that sent him to the cross. That we will try with all of our ability to put sin out of our lives because it was sin that sent our Savior to the cross. I mean, even unbelievers understand this. I've got a, a friend who's an agnostic. And I was talking to him one day. And here's what he said to me. He said, I'm not a Christian. But I understand that if you believe it, you have to live it. And he understood that Jesus died for sin. And he understood that if Jesus died for sin, that those who believed in Jesus needed to not live in sin. He had no faith in God at all. Wasn't even sure there was a God. He, he didn't believe the Bible was inspired or even particularly accurate. But he understood that part. Those, he under, it made good sense to him, those who believed the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible that seek to, to refuse to live in sin that sent that Jesus to the cross. However, the fact is, some love their sin more than they love the Savior, and so they refuse to come to Him. And they, re- they reject the salvation that He offers. Not for imagine. For, for example, imagine someone is involved in an adulterous relationship. They come to church and they hear the, the message of salvation. Jesus died for sin, rose from the dead, offers salvation to all who would believe. You know, logical outflow of that salvation means that once I'm saved, I'm going to have to break off this sinful relationship. I can't continue to live in sexual immorality as a believer in Jesus Christ. And at that point, that person will make a decision based off of what they love the most. If they love the Savior, they will turn to Jesus, they will be saved, and they will break off their adulterous relationship. If they love their sin, they will reject the Savior and continue the life they were living. Our decisions that we make for Jesus when He deals in our hearts and when He guides us in our lives, always they reveal what we love most. Always they reveal what's most important to us. Some people reject Jesus and they do not receive Him because they love sin more than the Savior. Some, on the other hand, they love self-righteousness more than salvation. Apart from receiving Jesus and believing in Him, we, we cannot save ourselves. It's a humbling thought. 
Especially for us as Americans, right? Because we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't need nobody. We can do it on our own. But salvation repeatedly tells us you can't do it. The best you can do is filthy rags. As you try to fix it yourself, you make it worse. And then we have to admit, I can't do it. I am wholly dependent on Jesus to save me. That my salvation and my righteousness and my entrance into heaven will not be because of me. I won't go to heaven and Jesus say, Whoa, you made it. Man, I was pulling for you. I was hoping. But you came through in the end. That was awesome. You were awesome. That ain't going to happen to nobody. That ain't going to happen to Billy Graham, much less me or you. When we get to heaven, we're going to say, Jesus, you're awesome. You did it. I I was concerned because, man, I sure didn't live up to it all the time. You got me here. It's because of you I've made it. Ain't none of us going to be put on a pedestal with gold, silver, or bronze medals and everybody clap. There's only one medal and it goes to Jesus and He's the one we're all going to be clapping out. You got us here. It's because of you. And boy, that's a that's a pride-busting truth. And some people, they can't endure that. They can't accept that everyone has to be saved the same way. They can't accept that they're not good enough on their own. They can't accept that they can't fix it by themselves. And in the end, they reject Jesus because they just can't humble themselves enough to believe in Him and receive Him. They love their self-righteousness more than they love their Savior. In the end, we will choose to receive Jesus or to reject Jesus based upon what we love the most. And salvation, true salvation, is always based on what Jesus has done for us, the Holy Spirit does in us. Salvation doesn't come automatically. It's available to whosoever will, but it comes automatically to not one person in the world. Every person who hears Jesus' message of salvation must then make a choice. Will they receive Jesus? Will they reject Jesus? Today, if you're here and you have never trusted in Christ as your Savior, God is working in you. God is working for you to bring you to a place of salvation. It's His desire for you. He loves you. He wants to save you. He wants you to be with Him. But He'll not make you. Today, you will choose You will choose to receive Jesus or you will choose to reject Jesus because those are the only choices there is. And the choice you make is eternally significant and has eternal consequences. Let's stand as our musicians.